What's up, everyone? This is episode 234 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my X account is at Wax Museum PC. Okay, so obviously, I mentioned social media there. If you've been on social media this past week, you know there's some pretty big stuff going on with Panini and Fanatics. And that is in addition to the pre-existing lawsuit and countersuit between the two that I mentioned in passing not long ago. So this past week, the NFL Players Association sent out a notice to agents that it had terminated its deal with Panini and would be granting player name and likeness rights to Fanatics instead. And keep in mind, the team name and logo rights are a completely different deal. So as of right now, Fanatics cannot manufacture traditional NFL-branded cards. And I know some of you already, you might be thinking, isn't this a basketball card podcast? Yes, you're 100% right. But if you think all of these events are exclusive to football cards, you have another thing coming. This is definitely worth following. So a day after this news came out then, Panini responded, and I found this statement on Darren Ravel's X account. I'm just going to read a small part of it for you. The company wrote... Quote, we believe this was a totally unwarranted and improper action by the NFL Players Association in conjunction with Fanatics, especially in light of the unprecedented sales by Panini of NFL trading cards. A little later on, they also said, we believe the only party who benefits from this action by the NFL Players Association is Fanatics and not the players, the leagues, or consumers. You know, I'm glad Panini's looking out for us consumers now because it doesn't feel like that's happened in a long time. But anyway, that is really all we know right now. It's not much. However, uh, it fueled a lot of content nonetheless this past week. Most of it speculative content. And you guys know my take on that right now. I don't like consuming it or creating it. Sometimes we just need to, I think we just need to let things play out. So I'm going to leave it at that. What I will say is this. As things continue to play out, Fanatics continues to show its true colors. Forget about what their leadership has told you about themselves. Forget about Ruben and Mahan. Just look at the company's actions instead. We have been stuck in an era of exclusive licenses for almost a decade and a half now. We have been begging for competition. And what's happening right now is not competition in the traditional sense. This is a hostile takeover. And I saw a story post from Carter, MC Basketball PC, this week that I thought summed things up pretty well. He wrote, Starting to feel like we're trading a company who passively mishandled the hobby for a company that is going to actively mishandle the hobby. And I think that's spot on. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I know I've said that a lot lately, but it's true. Anyway, just know that this thing is far from over, and no matter what happens, I'm still going to find new ways to enjoy this hobby. I'll continue to discover existing sets that I don't know about. I'll try and share those things with you. I'll I'll share my hobby experience. And just know I will keep filling that mailbox with things that I like. So this is not the death of the hobby for me at least. and, And hopefully not a lot of other people as well. Let's see this thing play out. But we'll find ways to enjoy it. Now, speaking of my mailbox. I feel like this past week was a good mail week in both quality and quantity. So I'm going to talk about four of those pieces today. There was a fifth card that I thought about talking about, but it's a football card. 
You've heard enough football talk here already. If you want to hear more about that one, though, check out my YouTube channel, or you can check out Wednesday's episode of Stacking Slabs, because I got it in a trade with Brett, and he'll tell you more about that. I I won't spoil all that. As for the basketball mail, though, the first card I want to talk about is a 2022-23 Panini photogenic rookie of Benedict Matherin, numbered 397 out of 999. And as I've talked about before, I've tried to be pretty selective when it comes to Matherin rookies because there are a lot of them out there. And before the season even began, I identified a handful I wanted to watch for. I did an episode about that. You guys probably remember that. Well, this particular card was not on that list, but it features a picture from a game that I went to in Orlando. I was able to confirm that thanks to Getty Images. So even though it wasn't on my list, you guys know I like finding photos of games I went to. So any one of those that's affordable, I'm definitely going to grab. And I think this one cost me somewhere in the range of $5 ship. So I'll try to get a picture of that up so you can check that out. The second card I want to talk about is another Benedict Matherin card and also features a photo from a game I went to. And that is a Chronicles Hoops Premium Blue Parallel, number 22 of 99. And this photo was not on Getty Images, but I was able to match it up to the Miami game I went to by using the crowd, which included a shot of Heat President Pat Riley. Now, aside from the photo itself, I was kind of excited to get this card because it marked the return of Hoops Premium, which, you know, it was a one-off product back in the 2019 Zion craze, but I really liked the design of it, and it it just doesn't get a lot of love because that set was printed to the moon, but I think it's a good-looking set and a good-looking product, so I was happy to see it come back. The thing I found strange about this Hoops Premium design, though, it's modeled after the 2021 Hoops design and not 2022, so I thought that was kind of weird. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the blue finish of this card. In general, blue is my favorite color, and when it comes to chromium stuff, it usually matches up with Pacers pictures pretty well, so I like grabbing those when I can. You probably remember me talking about my 2013 Prism Blue Pacers set. The way... The blue pops on those cards is just unreal. And oddly enough, just like the golds from year to year, some of the blues look way better than others. I was hoping that this Hoops Premium would have a shine, kind of like the optic blue parallels from the last couple years. Those have all looked really good. Unfortunately, it does not. It looks pretty dull in person, which was disappointing, but I haven't really seen these out and about at shows, so I wouldn't have known all of this stuff had I not just went ahead and bought one. And like I said earlier... It features a photo from a game I went to, so I was going to end up buying some version of this card anyway. It might as well be the blue. Doesn't look horrible, just not quite what I expected, and that's okay. All right, next up, I received a 2016-2017 Panini Prism Black 1 of 1 of CJ Miles. And this one's got a bit of an interesting story behind it. I was cruising social media one day, And I got a message from Craig, who goes by New York City Sports Cards on Instagram. You might also know him as one of the hosts of Crosstown Cardboard, or you might have heard about the card club that he runs at his school. If you can't tell, he's very active in the hobby, and and not just active, he's active in productive ways, so I really appreciate that about him. So anyway, I get a message from Craig with a picture of this card, and he said, Hey, I picked this up today at a shop in Denver, not sure if you are any Pacers fans, you know, like this kind of stuff. So, well, you know, I like Pacer stuff. I like rare Pacer stuff. So I asked him if he was selling. He quoted me a fair price, and that was that. It was a very easy transaction. 
and after the fact, he told me a little bit more about how he found the card. He said he saw it in the back of a cabinet at a store and figured it needed to be released into the hobby world, which, hey, I agree with that. And it makes you wonder how much of that stuff is out there, which is why it's always worth stopping in at shops or antique malls, those sorts of places, even though the odds of finding something that nice is unlikely. But he was able to grab this 101 and redirect it into my collections. For that, I am very thankful. So thanks to Craig. And if you guys haven't checked out his podcast, Crosstown Cardboard, already, make sure to make it a point to do so soon. Okay, one more piece of mail that's got another cool story behind it. You heard my national recap a few weeks ago, but there was one particular story I left out because it wasn't finished yet. So one morning before things got hectic, I think this was before VIP got in, I was cruising around the show floor just looking at showcases. It was calm, it was nice, it was peaceful. And I must have had my Wax Museum shirt on because a dealer at one of the tables, uh, when I walked up, we were talking, he mentioned he had seen my YouTube channel before. He mentioned he was from Jacksonville, so it was probably some of my Florida card show stuff. We got to chatting a little, and he mentioned to me that one of his friends back in Florida had a Reggie Miller card I might want. And it was a 2000-2001 Topps Gold Label NBA Finals jersey, but it was the leather parallel, which is super rare. Uh, There's not a stated print run, but one of my friends has studied them quite a bit, and he thinks there's around 25 copies, and I I haven't seen a Reggie in years. So uh, he definitely got my attention there. I definitely told him I am interested in this card. I gave him my contact info, and from there I just had to hope for the best. To be honest, I'd kind of forgotten about it because, you know, I had a lot of different interactions at the National. Kind of forgotten about it until late last week. I got an email from this gentleman with a picture of the card and a price, and a very reasonable price, I might add. So we made the transaction, and the rest is history. This thing showed up, and uh, it it felt really good to land yet another Reggie Miller card. I'm on a bit of a roll lately, and I, I can't take the credit for that. It's just things have kind of come up at the right times And um, I don't know, things are just working out. So in in this case, I want to thank the dealer again, because um, he was the one that took the steps in order to help me land this card. I don't know if he wants to be mentioned by name, so I'm not going to say his name, but um, thank you so much. And one more thing, I know I've mentioned several times now that I'm on the fence about attending next year's national. This Reggie Miller card here is a great reminder of the opportunities that can come about from attending this show. That's not to say you couldn't get those opportunities elsewhere But I'd venture to say it's not anywhere near as likely. So I am keeping that in mind. And that's definitely going to be something that's going to be considered more as I get closer to time. All right, before I move into today's listener mailbag, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all the hottest trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 33 million cards from basketball's biggest stars like LeBron James and Kevin Durant to Marvel favorites like Spider-Man, Thor, and Captain America. ComC has something for every type of collector. Visit ComC.com today to build your collection with your favorite cards. Additionally, some of you have asked me for ways you can help support this show. The easiest way is my eBay affiliate link. And using this link costs you absolutely nothing, just an extra 30 seconds or so of your time. But it helps support this show. To access this link, Simply go to WaxMuseumPodcast.com, click the eBay logo, shop as planned, so whatever you're going to buy anyway, just click my link first, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's 
waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey everybody, Boston Steve here, the Northeast correspondent, checking in from the city of a winning basketball team, and you are listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so as you saw by the title, today's main segment is the 17th installment of the Listener Mailbag. I think I've got 16 questions today, so I'm going to go ahead and jump right in. And the first question comes from Benny Collects, who asks, best card under $20 that you picked up this year and haven't already shown off? Now, I had to pull up my purchase history for this one, but there were quite a few in that range. I think I've talked about most of them, though. About a month ago, I, I bought a Shack lot for $0.99 cents plus shipping that included a 2000 Tops Heritage Retrofractor, and that was literally right after I talked about those on the show. I think I'm going to end up doing that set, by the way, but that would have sold for more had it been labeled correctly, so I'm um, thinking of something else. Back in May... I bought a pretty rare Jermaine O'Neal patch for like $6 shipped. I don't think I've talked about that one, but it's from 2002-2003 Tops Pristine. There's no serial numbering on the back, and I can't find any pack odds, but my general feeling is that there are only 25 to 50 copies at most because I just never see these. And I don't even, I think 50 is way too high, actually. Um, And the only other place I've seen one is on a Jermaine O'Neal collector's page. It's not the greatest prime piece. It's a single color, but that's one of those cards that you pick up when you see it, and you can always hope to upgrade later. And for six bucks, you really can't beat that. All right, next up, M Heat Cards ask if you could pick one player to get game use materials for for the first time in a licensed product, who would it be? Well, there's no way I can narrow this down to one, so I'm going to rattle off a quick list for you instead. I think you have to start with the 76 greatest players list, and there are eight guys from that list that don't have jersey relics, which is over 10% of the list. So alphabetically by last name, those would be Paul Arizin, Dave Bing, Billy Cunningham, Bob McAdoo, Bob Pettit, Dolph Shays, Bill Sharman, who had a floor relic but not a jersey relic, and then Lenny Wilkins. And if I had to choose one of those eight, I would probably go with Bob Pettit. I know I've said it many times before, but I don't think he gets anything near the recognition that he deserves. Now, there's a slew of other old-timers I'd love to own relics for as well. We're talking guys like Marie Stokes, or maybe some of the very early NBA guys, or then guys into the ABA as well, like Roger Brown and Mel Daniels. I'd love to have a coaching relic for Slick Leonard. There's so much untapped potential with this stuff. The bigger issue for companies will be acquiring this. A lot of this stuff was available in the past when prices were more reasonable, but the price of game-worn stuff has gone up significantly as of late, which is why I lobbied, and you heard it on here several times, I lobbied for more event-worn materials, provided the event itself was actually significant. Say, you know, like a 75th anniversary photo shoot. You cut up all those blazers, you know. But anyway, Panini missed the boat on that. The next time a bunch of these guys are together again, we'll, we'll probably will have lost another handful of them, unfortunately. And that makes me sad to think about. So I should probably move on to the next question. Let's get to some Pacers-related questions. The Bouvier asks, what are your predictions for the Pacers as far as wins and losses, playoffs, or standings for this year? And then which under-the-radar player on the Pacers are you the most excited about? Well, I haven't been this optimistic about this team in a long time, but I think this team could reasonably win 45 games, provided there are no major injuries, That would probably put them in the 6th or 7th spot. I would lean more towards number 7, but if they could sneak up to number 6, that would be amazing though, because then they would avoid the play-in tournament, 
and they're not playing one of the top two teams. As far as under the radar players on the roster, everyone knows about the main guys so far. So I in in the draft, you know, the high draft pick. So I can't even list a guy like Jairus Walker or Ben Matherin because, you know, you guys know them. I think I'm going to go with Ben Shepard, who is the 26th pick in the draft. He's a 6'6'2 guard out of Belmont. He seems like a good fit for this modern three-point era because I think his catch-and-shoot percentage, I think I read uh, from three-point range, was like 40% in his senior year. So I'd like to see him get a little better at creating on his own. He seems to have a good first step, but I think he could benefit from working on that floater. And you know that will come with time. I'm not saying he's going to come in and get and just set the league on fire, but he's got a shot to get some rotation minutes from the start, especially if Buddy Heald gets moved, which seems like it has been discussed. Okay, Green Stiller wrote, Same question I asked Sholey, but Pacers. Dead or alive, who are you grabbing a beer with? Who do you want to marry into the family? And whose tenure do you want to erase from franchise history? And then bonus question, who would you most trust to watch your cat? Well, I definitely have to grab a beer with Ron Artest, uh, just not in a plastic blue cup. We don't want to have any flashbacks there. Marry into the family. You know, I'm probably going to go with Scott Pollard here. He's a great social media follow. Seems like a real funny guy. Uh, I think he'd be a lot of fun at family get-togethers. And then if I'm going to erase someone from franchise history, this there was no doubt in my mind, 100%, it has to be Coach Jim O'Brien. Uh, for a number of things, he just hated playing young players, He was obsessed with using stretch fours when the league wasn't ready for them. And while that makes him sound really progressive now, just know that they weren't good stretch fours. We're talking guys like James Posey and Troy Murphy. He was having them put up like 500 three-point shots a day during the summer, trying to uh, really groom them for that position. And, you know, as a result of that, I almost said James Posey for this answer. So I'm sure James is a nice guy and all, but I hated That entire era of Pacers basketball, I especially hated any minute he was on the floor, and I hated any minute that Jim O'Brien was the head coach. I remember exactly where I was when he got fired. So, um, you know, I've talked about that some in the David Harrison episode. Not going to go more into that. And then who would I trust to watch my cat? Well, not Jim O'Brien. And I had to do some research on this one. Around three years ago, the Pacers put out a video where they asked players to choose dog or cat. And the only player to pick Cat was Miles Turner. So obviously, I've got to go with someone that's pro-Cat. I would not let Victor Oladipo get anywhere close to Reggie or Manny. It ain't going to happen. Okay, next question comes from 412 Sports Cards, which, by the way, make sure to check out the Icebox pod. Uh, Those two guys do a great job with that podcast. Just listened to one this morning about uh, patches, about college football patches and game-worn patches. Really interesting stuff, stuff that I learned Uh, Anyway, the question, what do you do with cards of guys like Chris Duarte that you own? He was an exciting rookie. You bought cards and then the Pacers traded him. Do you keep all your cards, trim the collection, or clean almost all of them out? Well, the short answer is I keep pretty much all of them. And the reason for that is I've refined my buying habits quite a bit over the years. I know there are a handful of cards I'm going to want for most Pacers rookies, regardless of how many seasons they spend with the team. I like draft night autos, I like golds, I like prism silvers, I like optic hollows, I like status and aspirations, and then I like big patches as well, provided they're player-worn, or if I'm even luckier, game-worn. I really didn't buy anything outside of those parameters for Duarte 
In fact, I'm still working on some of them. I keep losing the Optic Gold listings when those show up. So thankfully, all of those Duartes that I bought still fit in with my collection, and I don't feel like I have to move on from any of them, even though he's with the Kings now. Okay, this one is not a Pacers question, but it's going to turn into one. One of my local friends here, 727 Sports Cards, Greg, asked, what sport will you start following after the Detroit Pistons win every NBA title from 2025 to 2032? Greg, that was nice of you to leave one more year in there for development. But uh, if that were to happen, I would probably just quit watching sports. I know I've said this before, but I can't wait for our teams to be relevant again just so the Pacers can have a chance at knocking the Pistons out of something important. We'll start with the play-in tournament this year, although I don't think you guys will get there. And then we'll work our way up from there. All right, moving on from the Pacers stuff, Bob and I cards ask, how will the 2020 year in the hobby mature as it was an impactful year? Will 2020 products be considered the next junk wax era given the obscene amount of high prices of the time or will they age like fine wine? You know, there's such a broad range of stuff from that era that it will be hard to paint them all with the same brush. Uh, Will the majority of it be shiny junk or mass-produced? You know, most likely, yes, but there will be some gems that make it through unscathed as well. I do, however, think we're going to see a lot of unopened packs and and blasters of products like Hoops Premium and Chronicles and Illusions. I wouldn't be surprised to see those hanging out at thrift stores and vintage stores for a while now or flea markets, all those types of of similar spots, Uh, similar to how we've seen 1990 Hoops. I mean, you can go into any of those stores And pre-boom, you could find a box of 1990 hoops at pretty much every one of them. Now, with that being said, there are still some chase cards in those products that I mentioned. So I'm not sure they'll stick around quite as long because 1990 hoops had one heck of a run. But, you know, you get what I'm saying here. Okay, next question from Mike Bev Celtics. He asked, which Fleer set do you miss the most? I think there were a lot of great sets, but I want to choose one here that had more continuity. So Fleer Ultra just really felt important to me year after year from the in-game photos to the gold medallion parallels to the inserts. Uh, I felt like this was something I could look forward to every season, even in the down years for basketball cards like the early 2000s. And then on top of that, we got a handful of WNBA Fleer Ultra sets, including the 2001 iteration that had coaches. Shout out to Coach Card. So yeah, I'm definitely going to go with Fleer Ultra. Okay, next up, Cardboard Insights wrote, I am mostly a 90s guy, but the early 2000s also have a trove of cool inserts. I know you enjoy this era, besides 2004-2005 Hot Hands, so he knows I mention that one all the time. Uh, Besides that one, which I also love, what other inserts do you enjoy from this era? And then he added on, also my Taco Bell staple for years has been the chicken and steak chalupas. Do you dabble in the chalupa lane? Uh, We'll get to the Taco Bell part at the end here. I tell you what, though, I've just never been much of an insert guy. Nothing against them, but for the past 20 years of collecting, I have been just laser-focused, mainly on patches and in-person autos. So if I had to name a couple inserts that come to mind, it would probably... They're not popular ones, necessarily. I I would think of 2000 Top's Finest Title Quest. Um, I like the Top's Gallery, Gallery of Heroes... They were like a stained glass sets, even though it was technically 1999, but there was also one in 2000. Um, obviously, you mentioned Hot Hands, which I love. Ron Artest was in that one. And then Ron wasn't in a lot of sets, but he was in another insert set from 2003 Tops called Justice of the Court. 
I kind of like that one. Those aren't really iconic 2000s inserts. Um, but yeah, those are some that I've liked. I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't go crazy over them though, but if I had to pick some, those are some that come to mind. As for the Chalupa Lane, yes, I do dabble there, mainly when I need to claim a reward from the Taco Bell app because of every option on there. You've got like Cinnamon Twist, you know, which are cheap, nachos, which are cheap, uh, and then the Chalupa, right? You've got Chalupa on there, which is the most valuable because it normally sells for something like four bucks. Uh, I don't think I've had the chicken or steak version, at least not recently. I've, I've always gone with the ground beef, but yes, I do occasionally go to the Chalupa Lane. Speaking of 2000s cards, and not Chalupas, uh, Hoops Hobby wrote, if you could open one box, hobby box of 2000s NBA cards, what product would it be and why? Well, I think the nicest box I opened in the 2000s was a hobby box, or maybe even two. I know I did at least a box and a half of 2005-2006 Topps Chrome. And um, I really didn't open any high-end stuff like Exquisite or UD Ultimate. So that, you know, up front, that's a pretty tempting answer. But deep down, I know it would be a quick rip. Uh, it's either going to be really exciting really quick or really disappointing really quick. I want something that's going to take a little longer and I can enjoy. You know, I can look at the base cards. I can look at different parallels. So I was thinking about other products that I've opened. You know, as much as I talk about Tops Total, I've opened a lot of those boxes. They take forever. There's usually only one hit, maybe two if you're lucky. So an ideal box experience needs to be something in between. It needs to have more than one hit and it needs to have more than 40 or 50 cards. So I'm going to go with 2004-2005 Tops Finest because each box had a few mini boxes and then also an uncirculated box in its own, or I'm sorry, uncirculated card in its own pack. I've watched people break that on, on like YouTube or on video, but I never got to do it myself. And that one looks like a lot of fun. All right. Forrest Dim wrote, are you happy with the limited roster coverage in most modern base sets? Or do you want to see comprehensive team sets? For example, 10 to 13 players per team so that you can have something for every Pacers player. You know, I would love to have base cards for some of the more obscure guys, but I don't think every set should be like that. Maybe just one or two at most. And I just mentioned Tops Total in the previous answer, but that's why I liked Tops Total so much back in 2005. And keep in mind, I'm talking about the second year of the product because it gave us, uh, you, you had base cards, you had a silver parallel, you had a gold parallel number to 10, and then eight printing plates to chase for nearly every player in the league because they did plates for the front and the back of the cards. And then on top of that, the checklist had coaches, assistant coaches, mascots. It was a great low-end product for team collectors, and it was great for guys going out and getting autographs as well or sending them through the mail. They were just good cards for that because they were not glossy. Uh, Panini did something kind of similar to this for a couple years called Panini Complete, it didn't have coaches, it didn't have mascots, it didn't have the printing plates, and the cards were just flimsy at best, and that that's probably being kind. It felt like something I'd get printed at Kinko's when I first started making customs, but I'm surprised that Panini didn't do this with some of the more popular sets a couple years ago when they needed to up the print run. I would have preferred a bigger checklist over more parallels. In my mind, that kind of solves two problems, but I know there were some logistics when it comes to getting the Chromium stuff printed, so all of this is easier said than done. One other thing I'd like to see make a return, though, uh, which was a lot more common in the 90s, would be having a Series 1 and Series 2 version for at least a couple sets. 
And the closest thing we have to this right now would be the update cards in Chronicles, but that's a very small checklist, and a lot of people don't even know those exist. So anyway, yes, I'd love to have at least one low-end set that features as many guys from the league as possible. Probably not going to happen, but who knows? We'll see. All right, the next question I enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, I don't even know where to begin with an answer, so I'm just going to read it. You'll see what I mean when I get there. Tasty Card Sandwich wrote, Fanatics Tops has announced retroactive first Bowman cards for baseball legends. Roberto Clemente is who they've shown in the preview. Where does this groundbreaking innovation rank on the list of greatest innovations by Fanatics that dwarf all innovations for the previous 70 years? I can see an argument for Taco Fractors or Frozen Fractors, but retroactive first Bowmans may be worthy of the top spot. Aren't you excited to see the industry-defining innovations Fanatics has lined up for the future? I'm really hoping for a white party insert set where players are invited to a Reuben White party. There they pose for pictures that are turned into cards that they later sign. Their designer white clothes can also be chopped up and placed into cards. Who wouldn't want a slice of a Gucci tee worn by Jordan Poole at a Reuben White party? I don't. I feel weird saying Gucci. It's not a word that I say a lot. So probably the first time I've ever said it on the show. So what he's essentially describing there is like a first day auto or a photo shoot auto for the Reuben White parties. But hey, you know, I'm not going to rule that out. All right. Small Town Cards ask, what do you think of eBay's new pre-authorization system for offers? Um, the short answer is I, I don't like it. But um, it's tricky. It's more nuanced than that because I I like the premise behind it. I just don't like the execution. So maybe I I should clarify that a little bit. I don't like the execution so far. For those of you that haven't seen it, when you make an offer on an eBay card now, you have to set up a payment method at the time of the offer. Should the seller accept, you'll automatically be charged. At least that's what I've found to be the case. I've had some people tell me they still had to go through the process. But you know, that doesn't sound bad in theory, right? I, you know, I should set up my payment method and then it'll, it'll pay for stuff and things will be, you know, the process will be sped up. However, every time I go to make an offer on my account, it has to be through a credit card or my bank account on PayPal. For whatever reason, it will not let me pay for something with my PayPal balance, which is how I pay for practically everything because, you know, I've got my funds separate from uh, Mrs. Wax Museum and I's funds, right? So as a result, I'm, I'm making way less offers than I used to, and I used to make a lot of offers. Um, now, I'm not the only one that feels this way either. I tweeted something about this, and Mike Summer from Waxpack Hero replied, The fact that I can't use eBay available funds as a payment mechanism has kept me from making as many offers. Another person responded, My offers have been cut down more than half since it's been implemented. It's time-consuming, it's needlessly repetitive, it's a complete hassle. And then another person responded that they like it, but they wish they could offer on more than one item at the same time. Now, on top of that, I found that I couldn't change the address either. So if I wanted to send something to the eBay vault, as far as I can see, I wouldn't be able to. And, and, And eBay's been promoting that feature pretty hard, so I'm going to assume they want you to send stuff there. Now, maybe there's an option to do so and I haven't seen it, If that's the case, the functionality isn't very intuitive and it needs to be adjusted. Uh, All of that is to say if eBay would change a few things on it, I think it would be fine. Um, Until then, these sellers probably aren't going to get as much of my money. Okay, HOFBB players ask, what would be the two or three in-person autographs that you would most like to get and why? 
And then what are your top two or three in-person autographs that you have already gotten and why? Well, they say never meet your heroes, but if I knew my experience was going to be a good one, uh, I still haven't got Reggie Miller in person. I've, I've heard that he can be pretty tough. Uh, if the setting was right, I, I think that would be good. And then obviously Ron Artest as well, still haven't got him in person. Uh, another one would probably be Rick Barry, which though he's the most realistic of the three. He's not a difficult autograph. He's a great signer in the mail, uh, but he's one I think would be fun to get in person. And he did a signing, I don't know, probably three or four hours from my house a couple years ago. I thought about it quite a bit, but uh, I decided not to go because honestly, I just hate long trips in the car and I, and I hate them that much that I would not go drive to hang out with Rick Barry. Now, as far as people I've already gotten, my first NBA autograph experience is always going to stick out to me. My uncle took me to the visiting site at Market Square Arena to see the Hornets, and I got Glenn Rice, David Wesley, and Bobby Phils to sign my program. Uh, that was very exciting to me at the time, and, and I still have that program. The next time, then, we went to the home side, and we got Rick Smiths and Travis Best, so you know that's why I've, I've kind of gravitated towards Rick Smiths cards. I have great memories of that moment. Many years later, I ran into Reggie Jackson, and I'm talking about the baseball version here, at a minor league baseball game. I didn't know he was going to be there, so I ended up just getting a picture and having him sign an index card. But of all the baseball players I never got to watch live, Reggie is my favorite to read about. On top of that, he was pleasant, which I've heard is not always the case. You know, I can't blame these guys for having bad days, I guess. Who really wants to be hounded? for autographs and pictures all the time. So I try to keep that in mind whenever I'm requesting something, but uh, to me, Reggie Jackson was very kind. Okay, um, Houston asked, would you consider traveling with Mrs. Wax Museum and No Cat for a card show holidays overseas? And if yes, would you rather go to Europe or Asia or any country in particular? Well, I don't think the cats will be happy about that No Cat part, but I know Mrs. Wax Museum loves to travel to be honest with you, I've never been out of the United States, and I'm more of a homebody. I get antsy whenever I'm away from home for more than a day or so. With that being said, I'm not going to totally rule it out, even though it's not likely. So I definitely haven't thought too much about specific countries. I know I've followed some of the European shows on Instagram via Derotter Cards profile. If I were going to seriously pursue it, I'd have to get a list of the biggest shows and then go from there. But good question, though. Okay, HoopsCards91 asks, what are your top three most listened to episodes? This was a fun question because I really didn't know. And I, I had to do some digging. I had to even look at the platform to figure out how to figure that out. And I guessed right on one of them, though. The other two surprised me a little bit. Uh, and all I can go by is downloads. So I can't verify how many of you that are downloading are actually listening to them. But number one was episode 142 the Western Conference's Most Iconic Cards with Sholey, and that's from November of 2021. No, number two was episode 53, The History of NBA Cards. That was part one from March of 2020. And then episode uh, number three was episode 89, A Conversation with Evan About Status and 2019-2020 Inserts from November of 2020. I knew the episode with Evan was up there. I had no clue about the others, though. I will say I, I think the History of Cards episode has a lot of utility, and that's one that I think would still hold up today. Um, the Iconic Cards one kind of surprised me, though, especially being number one, but I think a lot of it has to do with timing. 
there are certain times of the year when people listen more. And then also during the card boom, you had a lot more people jumping in and consuming content. Uh, you know, for instance, one of those was March of 2020. So everyone was trying to find something to listen to at that point. I think a lot of those people have left now. I'd be surprised if I ever made an episode going forward that passed any of these three because they're all kind of from that short boom era. But anyway, those are the, the three most downloaded episodes that I've got. All right, final question. Phoenix Sun Sports Card Catalog asks, if you had to start your collection over again from scratch, would you collect differently? Well, if I had the advantage of all the lessons I've learned over the years, absolutely. I think I would have consolidated into jumbo patch cards a lot earlier instead of buying a, um, and, and accumulating these smaller patches here and there. I would have started grabbing refractors earlier. I would have doubled down on the 2000 stuff that I already knew I liked and I'm, I'm ending up buying now anyway. And I wouldn't have been as afraid to set new record comps as I was at one point. And those are just a few examples. There are a lot of things I would have changed. With that being said, I don't know if I would end up at any better spot, though. And and, and just to clarify, I'm not upset with where I'm at right now. But um, if I were to have a quote-unquote head start like that, I still think new problems would arise. And, and at the end of the day, experience is still the greatest teacher. So uh, I enjoy the journey I've been on. I'm happy with what I have. I, I don't take that for granted. But uh, yeah, I always wonder you know, what it would be like to start over. All right, well, there you have it. Thanks to everyone that submitted a question this week. There's a lot of topics covered there. Maybe there was something I talked about that resonated with you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or X under the handle at Wax Museum PC. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the website for my affiliate links, tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. 